0: He was of another world, a world in which she had no part. How could she understand, when I couldn't even fathom what was happening to me? Finals came and went. I did well, but I didn't care. Susie went home for spring vacation, and I was glad to be alone. Spring vacation was soon over, and warm winds blew through the littered streets of Berkeley. I knew that it was time to return to that warrior's world, to that strange little gas station. This time perhaps more open and more humble than before. But now I was more sure of one thing. If Socrates cut at me with his sharp wit again, I was going to slash right back. Book 1. The Winds of Change. Gusts of Magic. It was late evening. After my workout and dinner, I took a nap. When I awoke it was nearly midnight. I walked slowly through the crisp night air of early spring toward the station. A strong breeze blew from behind me, as if impelling me forward along the campus paths. As I neared the familiar intersection, I slowed down. A light drizzle had begun, chilling the night. In the glow from the warmly lit office I could see Sock's shape through the misted window, drinking from his mug, and a mixture of anticipation and dread squeezed my lungs and accelerated my heartbeat. I looked down at the pavement as I crossed the street and neared the office door. The wind gusted against the back of my neck. Suddenly chilled, I snapped my head up to see Socrates standing in the doorway, staring at me and sniffing the air like a wolf. He seemed to be looking right through me. Memories of the Grim Reaper returned. I knew this man had within him great warmth and compassion, but I sensed that behind his dark eyes lay a great unknown danger. My fear dissipated when he gently said, ''It's good that you've returned.'' He welcomed me into the office with a wave of his arm. Just as I took off my shoes and sat down, the station bell clanged. I wiped the mist off the window and looked out to see an old Plymouth limp with a fiat tire. Socrates was already headed out the door wearing his army surplus rain poncho. Watching him, I wondered momentarily how he could possibly have frightened me. Then rain clouds darkened the night, bringing back fleeting images of the black hooded death of my dream changing the pattering of the soft rain into bony fingers drumming madly on the roof. I moved restlessly on the couch, tired from my intense workouts in the gym. The conference championships were coming up next week, and today had been the last hard workout before the meet. Socrates opened the door to the office. He stood with the door open and said, ''Come outside, now,'' then left me. As I rose and put on my shoes, I looked through the mist. Socrates was standing out beyond the pumps, just outside the aura of the station lights. Half shrouded in darkness, he appeared to be wearing a black hood. I was not going out there. The office was like a fortress against the night, and against a world outside that was beginning to grate on my nerves like noisy downtown traffic. Nope. I wasn't going out. Socrates beckoned me again, then again, from out in the darkness. Surrendering to fate, I went outside. As I approached him cautiously, he said, Listen, can you feel it? What? Feel? Just then the rain stopped and the wind seemed to change directions. Strange, a warm wind. The wind, sock? Yes, the winds. They are changing. It means a turning point for you now. You may not have realized it, neither did I. In fact, M- but tonight is a critical moment in time for you. You left, but you returned and now the winds are changing. He looked at me for a moment, then strode back inside. I followed him in and sat down on the familiar couch. Socrates was very still in his soft brown chair, his eyes riveted upon me. In a voice strong enough to pierce walls but light enough to be carded by the march winds, he announced, there is something I must do now. Don't be afraid. He stood. Socrates, you're scaring the hell out of me. I stammered angrily, sliding back in the couch, as he slowly came toward me, stalking like a tiger on the prowl. He glanced out the window, for a moment checking for possible interruptions, then knelt in front of me, saying softly, ''Dan, do you recall that I told you we must work on changing your mind before you can see the warrior's way?'' ''Yes, but I really don't think...'' ''Don't be afraid,'' he repeated. ''Comfort yourself with a saying of Confucius,'' he smiled. Only the supremely wise and the ignorant do not alter." Saying that, he reached out and placed his hands gently but firmly on my temples. Nothing happened for a moment then suddenly, I felt a growing pressure in the middle of my head. There was a loud buzzing, then a sound like waves rushing up on the beach. I heard bells ringing, and my head felt as if it was going to burst. That's when I saw the light, and my mind exploded with its brightness. Something in me was dying, I knew this for a certainty and something else was being born. Then the light engulfed everything. I found myself lying back on the couch. Socrates was offering me a cup of tea, shaking me gently. What happened to me? Let's just say I manipulated your energies and opened a few new circuits. The fireworks were just your brain's delight in the energy bath. The result is that you are relieved of your lifelong illusion of knowledge. From now on, ordinary knowledge is no longer going to satisfy you, I'm afraid. I don't get it. You will, he said, without smiling. I was very tired. We sipped our tea in silence. Then, excusing myself, I rose, put on my sweater, and walked home, as if in a dream. The next day was full of classes and full of professors babbling words that had no meaning or relevance for me. In History 101, Watson lectured on how Churchill's political instincts had affected the war. I stopped taking notes. I was too busy taking in the colors and textures of the room, feeling the energies of the people around me. The sounds of my professor's voices were far more interesting than the concepts they conveyed. Socrates, what did you do to me? I'll never make it through finals. I was walking out of class, fascinated by the knobby texture of the carpet when I heard a familiar voice. Hi, Danny. I haven't seen you for days. I've called every night, but you're never home. Where have you been hiding? Oh, hi Susie. It's good to see you again. I've been studying. Her words had danced through the air. I could hardly understand them but I could feel what she was feeling, hurt and a little jealous. Yet her face was beaming as usual. I'd like to talk more, Susie, but I'm on my way to the gym. Oh, I forgot. I felt her disappointment. Well, she said. I'll see you soon, huh? Sure. Hey, she said. Wasn't Watson's lecture great? I just love hearing about Churchill's life. Isn't it interesting? (laughs) Ha, yeah great lecture. Well, bye for now, Danny. Bye. Turning away, I recalled what Sock had said about my patterns of shyness and fear. Maybe he was right. I wasn't really that comfortable with people, I was never sure of what to say. In the gym that afternoon, however, I certainly knew what to do. I came alive, turning on the faucet of my energy full blast. I played, swung, leaped, I was a clown, a magician, a chimpanzee. It was one of my best days ever. My mind was so clear that I felt exactly how to do anything I tried. My body was relaxed, supple, quick, and light. In tumbling, I invented a one-and-one-half backward somersault with a late half-twist to a roll from the high bar, I swung into a full-twisting double flyaway, both moves, the first ever done in the United States. A few days later, the team flew up to Oregon for the conference championships. We won the meet and flew home. It was like a dream of fanfare, action, and glory but I couldn't escape the concerns that plagued me. I considered the events that had occurred since the other night's experience of the bursting light. Something had certainly happened, as Sock had predicted, but it was frightening and I didn't think I liked it at all. Perhaps Socrates was not what he seemed, perhaps he was something more clever or more evil than I'd suspected. These thoughts vanished as I stepped through the doorway of the lighted office and saw his eager smile. As soon as I'd sat down, Socrates said, are you ready to go on a journey? A journey? I echoed. Yes a trip, travel, sojourn, vacation and adventure. No, thanks, I'm not dressed for it. Nonsense. He bellowed, so loudly that we both looked around to see if any passersby had heard. S-H-H-H. He whispered loudly. Not so loud, you'll wake everyone. Taking advantage of his affability, I blurted out, Socrates, my life no longer makes sense." Nothing works, except when I'm in the gym. Aren't you supposed to make things better for me? I thought that's what a teacher did. He started to speak, but I interrupted. And another thing. I've always believed that we have to find our own paths in life. No one can tell another how to live. Socrates slapped his forehead with his palm, then looked upward in resignation. I am part of your path, baboon. And I didn't exactly rob you from the cradle and lock you up here, you know. You can take off whenever you like. He walked to the door and held it open. Just then, a black limousine pulled into the station, and sock affected a British accent. Your car is ready, sir. Disoriented, I actually thought we were going on a trip in the limousine. I mean, why not? So, befuddled, I walked straight out to the limo and started to climb into the back seat. I found myself staring into the wrinkled old face of a little man, sitting with his arm around a girl of about 16, probably off the streets of Berkeley. He stared at me like a hostile lizard. Sock's hand grabbed me by the back of my sweater and dragged me out of the car. Closing the door, he apologized, excuse my young friend. He's never been in a beautiful car like this and just got carried away, didn't you, Jack? I nodded dumbly. What's going on? I whispered fiercely out of the side of my mouth. But he was already washing the windows. When the car pulled away, I flushed with embarrassment. Why didn't you stop me, Socrates? Frankly, it was pretty funny. I hadn't realized you could be so dullible. We stood there, in the middle of the night, staring each other down. Socrates grinned as I clenched my teeth, I was getting angry. I'm really tired of playing the fool around you. I yelled. Well, you have to admit that you've been practicing the role so diligently, you've got it nearly perfect. I wheeled around, kicked the trash can, and stomped back toward the office. Then it occurred to me. Why did you call me Jack, a while ago? Short for jackass, he said, passing me. Alright, goddammit, I said, as I ran by him to enter the of rice. Let's go on your journey. Whatever you want to give, I can take. Well, now... This is a new side of you spunky Danny. Spunky or not, I'm no flunky. Now tell me, where are we headed? Where am I headed? I should be in control, not you. Socrates took a deep breath. Dan, I can't tell you anything. Much of a warrior's path is subtle, invisible to the uninitiated. For now, I have been showing you what a warrior is not by showing you your own mind. You can come to understand that soon enough, and so I must take you on a journey. Come with me. He led me to a cubbyhole I hadn't noticed before, hidden behind the racks of tools in the garage and furnished with a small rug and a heavy straight-backed chair. The predominant color of the nook was gray. My stomach felt queasy. Sit down, he said gently. Not until you explain what this is all about. I crossed my arms over my chest. Now it was his turn to explode. I am a warrior, you are a baboon. I will not explain a damn thing. Now shut up and sit down or go back to your gymnastics spotlight and forget you ever knew me. You're not kidding, are you? No, I am not kidding. I hesitated a second, then Saturday. Socrates reached into a drawer, took out some long pieces of cotton cloth, and began to tie me to the chair. What are you going to do, torture me? I half joked. No, now please be silent, he said, tying the last strip around. My waist and behind the chair, like an airline seatbelt. Are we going flying, sock? I asked nervously. In a manner of speaking, yes, he said, kneeling in front of me, taking my head in his hands and placing his thumbs against the upper ridges of my eye sockets. My teeth chattered, I had an excruciating urge to urinate. But in another second, I had forgotten all colored lights flashed. I thought I heard his voice but couldn't quite make it out, it was too far away. We were walking down a corridor swathed in a blue fog. My feet moved but I couldn't feel ground. Gigantic trees surrounded us, they became buildings, the buildings became boulders, and we ascended a steep canyon that became the edge of a sheer cliff. The fog had cleared, the air was freezing. Green clouds stretched below us for miles, meeting an orange sky on the horizon. I was shaking. I tried to say something to Socrates, but my voice came out muffled. My shaking grew uncontrollable. Sock put his hand on my belly. It was very warm and had a wondrously calming effect. I relaxed and he took my arm firmly, tightening his grip, and hurtled forward, off the edge of the world, pulling me with him. Without warning the clouds disappeared and we were hanging from the rafters of an indoor stadium swinging precariously like two drunken spiders high above the floor. Oops," said Sock. Slight miscalculation point. What the hell? I yelled, struggling for a better handhold. I swung myself up and over and lay panting on a beam, twining my arms and legs around it. Socrates had already perched himself lightly on the beam in front of me. I noticed that he handled himself well for an old man. Hey, look, I pointed. It's a gymnastics meet Socrates, you're nuts. I'm nuts. He laughed quietly. Look who's sitting on the beam next to me. How are we going to get down? Same way we got up, of course. How did we get up here? He scratched his head. I'm not precisely sure, I had hoped for a front row seat. I guess they were sold out point. I began to laugh shrilly. This whole thing was too ridiculous. C clapped a hand over my mouth. S-h-h-h-h. He removed his hand. That was a mistake. ha 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 I laughed loudly before he muffled me again. I calmed down but felt giddy and started giggling. He whispered at me harshly. This journey is real, more real than the waking dreams of your usual life. Pay attention. By this time the scene below had indeed caught my attention. The audience from this height, coalesced into a multicolored array of dots, a shimmering, rippling, pointiest painting. I caught sight of a raised platform in the middle of the arena with a familiar bright blue square of floor exercise mat, surrounded by various gymnastic apparatus. My stomach rumbled in response, I experienced my usual pre-competition nervousness. Socrates reached into a small knapsack where had that come from, and handed me a pair of binoculars, just as a female performer walked out onto the floor. I focused my binoculars on the lone gymnast and saw she was from the Soviet Union. So, we were attending an international exhibition somewhere. As she walked over to the uneven bars, I realized that I could hear her talking to herself. The acoustics in here, I thought, must be fantastic but then I saw that girl lips weren't moving. I moved the lenses quickly to the audience and heard the roar of many voices, yet they were just sitting quietly. Then it came to me. Somehow, I was reading their minds. I turned the glasses back to the woman gymnast. In spite of the language barrier, I could understand her thoughts, be strong, ready I saw a preview of her routine as she ran through it mentally. Then I focused on a man in the audience, a guy in a white sports shirt in the midst of a sexual fantasy about one of the East German contestants. Another man, apparently a coach, was engrossed with the woman about to perform. A woman in the audience watched her too, thinking, beautiful girl, had a bad fall last year, hope she does a good job. I noticed that I was not receiving words, but feeling concepts, sometimes quiet or muffled, sometimes loud and clear. That was how I could understand Russian, German, or whatever. I noticed something else. When the Soviet gymnast was doing her routine, her mind was quiet. When she finished and returned to her chair, her mind started up again. It was the same for the East German gymnast on the rings and the American on the horizontal bar. Furthermore, the best performers had the quietest minds during their moment of truth. One East German fellow was distracted by a noise, while he swung through handstand after handstand on the parallel bars. I sensed his mind drawn to the noise, he thought, what, comma, as he muffed his final somersault to handstand. A telepathic ver, I peeked into the minds of the audience. I'm hungry. Got to catch an 11 o'clock plane or the Dusseldorf plans are shot. I'm hungry. But as soon as a performer was in mid-flight, the minds of the audience calmed too. For the first time, I realized why I loved gymnastics so. It gave me a blessed respite from my noisy mind. When I was swinging and somersaulting, nothing else mattered. When my body was active, my mind rested in the moments of silence. The mental noise from the audience was getting annoying, like a stereo playing too loud. I lowered my glasses and let them hang but I had neglected to fasten the strap around my neck, and I almost fell off the rafter trying to grab them as they plummeted straight for the floor exercise mat and a woman performer directly below. Sock! I whispered in alarm. He said placidly. I looked down to see the damage, but the binoculars had disappeared. Socrates grinned. Things work under a slightly different set of laws when you travel with me. He disappeared and I was tumbling through space, not downward but upward. I had a vague sense of walking backwards from the edge of a cliff, down a canyon, then into a mist, like a character in a crazy movie in reverse. Socrates was wiping my face with a wet cloth. Still strapped to the chair, I slumped. Well, he said. Isn't travel broadening? You can say that again. (laughs) Ha, how about unstrapping me? Not just yet, he replied, reaching again for my head. I mouthed, no, wait. Just, before the lights went out and a howling wind arose, carrying me off into space and time. I became the wind, yet with eyes and ears. And I saw and heard far and wide. I blew past the east coast of India near the Bay of Bengal, past a scrubwoman busy with her tasks. In Hong Kong, I whirled around a cellar of fine fabric bargaining loudly with a shopper. I raced through the streets of Sao Paulo, drying the sweat of German tourists playing volleyball in the hot tropical Sunday. I left no country untouched. I thundered through China and Mongolia and across the vast, rich land of the Soviet Union. I gusted through valleys and alpine meadows of Austria, sliced cold through the fjords of Norway. I tossed up litter on the Rue Pigalle in Paris. One moment I was a twister, ripping across Texas, the next, I was a gentle breeze caressing the hair of a young girl contemplating suicide in Canton, Ohio. I experienced every emotion, heard every cry of anguish and every peal of laughter. Every human circumstance was opened to me. I felt it all, and I understood. The world was people with minds, whirling faster than any wind, in search of distraction and escape from the predicament of change, the dilemma of life and death, seeking purpose, security, enjoyment, trying to make sense of the mystery. Everyone everywhere lived a confused, bitter search. Reality never matched their dreams, happiness was just around the comer, a corner they never turned. And the source of it all was the human mind. Socrates was removing the cloth strips which had bound me. Sunlight streaked through the windows of the garage into my eyes, eyes that had seen so much, filling them with tears. Socrates helped me into the office. As I lay trembling on the couch, I realized that I was no longer the naive and self-important youth who had sat quaking in the gray chair a few minutes or hours or days ago. I felt very old. I had seen the suffering of the world, the condition of the human mind, and I almost wept with an inconsolable sadness. There was no escape. Socrates, on the other hand, was jovial. Well, no more time to play games right now. My shift is almost up why don't you shuffle on home and get some sleep, kiddo? I creeped to my feet and put my arm in the wrong sleeve of my jacket. Extricating myself, I asked weakly, Socrates, why'd you tie me down? Never too weak for questions, I see. I tied you down so you wouldn't fall off the chair while you were thrashing around playing Peter Pan. Did I really fly? It felt like it. I sat down again, heavily. Let's say for now that it was a flight of the imagination. Did you hypnotize me or what? Not in the way you mean, certainly not to the same degree you've been hypnotized by your own confused mental processes. He laughed, picked up his knapsack where had I seen it before, and prepared to leave. What I did was draw you into one of many parallel realities, for your amusement and instruction. How? It's a bit complicated. Why don't we leave it for another time? Socrates yawned and stretched like a cat. As I stumbled out the door I heard Sock's voice behind me. Sleep well. You can expect a little surprise when you awake. Please, no more surprises, I mumbled, heading for home in a daze. I vaguely remember falling onto my bed. Then blackness. I awoke to the sound of the wind-up clock ticking loudly on the blue chest of drawers. But I owned no wind-up clock, I had no blue chest of drawers. Neither did I possess this thick quilt, now in disarray at my feet. Then I noticed that the feet weren't mine either. Much too small, I thought. The sun poured through the unfamiliar picture window. Who and where was I? I held onto a quickly fading memory, then it was gone. My small feet kicked off the remaining covers, and I leaped out of bed, just as Morn yelled, Danny I, time to get up, sweetheart. It was February 22, 1952 my 6th birthday. I let my pajamas fall to the floor and kicked them under the bed, then ran downstairs in my Lone Ranger underwear. In a few hours my friends would be arriving with presents, and we'd have cake and ice cream and lots of fun. After all the party decorations were thrown out and everyone had gone, I played listlessly with my new toys. I was bored, I was tired, and my stomach hurt. I closed my eyes and floated off to sleep. I saw each day pass like the next, school for a week, then the weekend, school, weekend, summer, fall, winter and spring. The years passed, and before long, I was one of the top high school gymnasts in Los Angeles. In the gym, life was exciting, outside the gym, it was a general disappointment. My few moments of fun consisted of bouncing on the trampoline or cuddling in the back seat of my valiant with Phyllis, my first curvy girlfriend. One day coach Harold Frey called me from Berkeley, California, and offered me a scholarship to the university. I couldn't wait to head up the coast to a new life. Phyllis, however, didn't share my enthusiasm. We began arguing about my going away, and we finally broke up. I felt bad but was consoled by my college plans, soon. I was sure life was really going to begin. The college years raced by, filled with gymnastics victories, but very few other high points. In my senior year, just before the Olympic gymnastics trials, I married Susie. We stayed in Berkeley so I could train with the team. I was so busy I didn't have much time or energy for my new wife. The final trials were held at UCLA. When the scores we tallied, I was ecstatic. I'd made the team, but my performances at the Olympiad didn't live up to my expectations. I returned home and slipped into relative anonymity. My newborn son arrived, and I began to feel a growing responsibility and pressure. I found a job selling life insurance, which took up most of my days and nights. I never seemed to have time for my family. Within a year, Susie and I were separated, eventually, she got a divorce. A fresh start, I reflected sadly. One day I looked in the mirror and realized that 40 years had passed, I was old. Where had my life gone? With the help of my psychiatrist I had overcome my drinking problem, and I'd had money, houses, and women. But I had no one now. I was lonely. I lay in bed late at night and wondered where my son was it had been years since I'd seen him. I wondered about Susie and about my friends from the good old days. I now passed the days in my favorite rocking chair, sipping wine, watching TV, and thinking about old times. I watched children play in front of the house. It had been a good life, I supposed. I'd gotten everything I'd gone after, so why wasn't I happy? One day, one of the children playing on the lawn came up to the porch. A friendly little boy, smiling, he asked me how old I was. I'm 200 years old, I said. He giggled, said, no you're not, and put his hands on hips. I laughed, too, which touched off one of my coughing spells, and Mary, my pretty, capable young nurse, had to ask him to go. After she had helped me regain my breath, I gasped, Mary, will you let me be alone for a while? Of course, Mr. Millman. I didn't watch her walk away and dash that was one of life's pleasures that had died long ago. I sat alone. I had been alone my whole adult life, it seemed. I lay back on my rocker and breathed. My last pleasure. And soon that, too, would be gone. I cried soundlessly and bitterly. God damn it, I thought. Why did my marriage have to fail? How could I have done things differently? How could I really have lived? Is it possible that I had missed something very important and dashed something that would have made a real difference? No, impossible, I assured myself. I cited all my achievements aloud. The fear persisted. I stood up slowly, looked down at the town from the porch of my hilltop house, and wondered where had life gone? What was it for? Was everyone... Oh, my heart, it's... ah, my arm, the pain. I tried to call out, but couldn't breathe. My knuckles grew white as I clutched the railing, trembling. Then my body turned to ice, and my heart to stone. I fell back into the chair, my head dropped forward. The pain left abruptly, and there were lights I'd never seen before and sounds I'd never heard. Visions floated by. ''Is that you, Susie?'' said a distant voice in my mind. Finally, all sight and sound became a point of light, then vanished. I had found the only peace I'd ever known. I heard a warrior's laugh. I sat up with a shock, the years pouring back into me. I was in my own bed, in my apartment, in Berkeley, California. I was still in college, and my digital clock showed 6.25pm. I'd slept through classes and workout. I leaped out of bed and looked in the mirror, touching my still youthful face, shivering with relief. It had all been a dream, a lifetime in a single dream, Socks, little surprise. I sat in my apartment and stared out the window, troubled. My dream had been exceptionally vivid. In fact, the past had been entirely accurate, even down to details I'd long forgotten. Socrates had told me that these journeys were real. Had this one predicted my future, too? I hurried to the station at 9.50pm and met Socrates, as he arrived. As soon as he stepped inside and the day shift attendant left, I asked, ''All right, Sock. What happened?'' ''You know better than I. It was your life, not mine, thank God.'' Socrates, I'm pleading with you I held out my hands to him. Is that what my life is going to be like? Because, if it is, I see no point in living it. He spoke very slowly and softly, as he did when he had something he wanted me to pay particular attention to. Just as there are different interpretations of the past and many ways to change the present, there are any number of possible futures. What you dreamed was a highly probable future, the one you were heading. Or had you not met me. You mean, that, if I had decided to pass by the gas station that night, that dream would have been my future? Very possibly. And it still may be. But you can make choices and change your present circumstances. You can alter your future. Socrates made us some tea, and set my mug down softly next to me. His movements were graceful, deliberate. Sock said, I don't know what to make of it. My life these past months has been like an improbable novel, you know what I mean? Sometimes I wish I could go back to a normal life. This secret life here with you, these dreams and journeys, it's been hard on me point. Socrates took a deep breath, something of great import was coming. Ben, I'm going to increase my demands on you, as you become ready. I guarantee that you'll want to leave the life you know and choose alternatives that seem more attractive, more pleasant, more normal. Right now, however, that would be a greater mistake than you can imagine. But I do see the value in what you're showing me. That may be so, but... You still have an astonishing capacity to fool yourself. That is, why you needed to dream your life. Remember it, when you're tempted to run off and pursue your illusions. Don't worry about me, Socrates. I can handle it. If I had known what was ahead, I would have kept my mouth shut. The Web of Illusion. The March winds were calming. Colorful spring blossoms spread their fragrance through the air, even into the shower room, where I washed the sweat and soreness from my body after an energy-filled workout. I dressed quickly and skipped down the rear steps of Harmon Gym to watch the sky over Edwards Field turn orange with the sun's final glow. The cool air refreshed me. Relaxed and at peace with the world, I ambled downtown to get a cheeseburger on the way to the UC. Theater. Tonight, they were showing The Great Escape, an exciting film about a daring escape of British and American prisoners of war. When the film was over I jogged up University Avenue toward campus, heading left up Shannock, and arrived at the station soon, after Socrates came on duty. It was a busy night, so I helped him until just after midnight. We went into the office and washed our hands, after which he surprised me by starting to fix a Chinese dinner, and beginning a new phase of his teaching. It started when I told him about The Great Escape. Sounds like an exciting film, he said, unpacking the bag of fresh vegetables he'd brought in, and an appropriate one, too. Oh? How's that question mark? You, too, then, need to escape. You're a prisoner of your own illusions, about yourself and about the world. To cut yourself free, you're going to need more courage and strength than any movie hero. I felt so good that night I just couldn't take socks seriously at all. I don't feel like I'm in prison, except when you have me strapped to a chair point." He began washing vegetables. Over the sound of running water, he commented, ''You don't see your prison because its bars are invisible. Part of my task is to point out your predicament, and I hope it is the most disillusioning experience of your life.'' ''Well thanks a lot, friend,'' I said, shocked at his ill will. I don't believe you have understood me. He pointed a turnip at me, then sliced it into a bowl. Disillusion is the greatest gift I can give you. However, because of your fondness for illusion, you consider the term negative. You commiserate with a friend by saying, Oh, what a disillusioning experience that must have been when you ought to be celebrating with him. The word disillusion is literally a freeing from illusion. But you cling to your illusions. Facts, I challenged him. Facts, he said, tossing aside the tofu he'd been dicing. "Dan, you are suffering, you do not fundamentally enjoy your life. Your entertainments, your playful affairs, and even your gymnastics are temporary ways to distract you from your underlying sense of fear. Wait a minute, sock. I was irritated. Are you saying that gymnastics and sex and movies are bad? Not inherently. But for you they're addictions, not enjoyments. You use them to distract you from what you know you should do, break free. Wait, Socrates. Those aren't facts. Yes, they are, and they are entirely verifiable, even though you don't see it yet. You then, in your conditioned quest for achievement and entertainment, avoid the fundamental source of your suffering. So that's what you think, huh? I retorted sharply, unable to keep the antagonism out of my voice. That was not something you really wanted to hear, was it? No, not particularly. It's an interesting theory, but I don't think it applies to me, that's all. How about giving me something a little more upbeat? Sure, he said, picking up his vegetables and resuming his chopping. The truth is, Dan, that life is going wonderfully for you and that you're not really suffering at all. You don't need me and you're already a warrior. How does that sound? Bet I laughed, my mood instantly brightened. But I knew it wasn't true. The truth probably lies somewhere in between, don't you think? Without taking his eyes off the vegetables, Socrates said, I think that your in-between is hell, from my perspective. Defensively I asked, is it just me who's the moron, or do you specialize in working with the spiritually handicapped? You might say that, he smiled, pouring sesame oil into a wok and setting it on the hot plate to warm. But nearly all of humanity shares your predicament. And what predicament is that? I thought I had already explained that, he said patiently. If you don't get what you want, you suffer, if you get what you don't want, you suffer, even, when you get exactly what you want, you still suffer, because you can't hold onto it forever. Your mind is your predicament. It wants to be free of change, free of pain, free of the obligations of life and death. But change is a law, and no amount of pretending will alter that reality. Socrates, you can really be depressing, you know that? I don't even think I'm hungry anymore. If life is nothing but suffering, then why bother at all? Life is not suffering, it's just that you will suffer it, rather than enjoy it, until you let go of your mind's attachments and just go for the ride freely, no matter what happens. Socrates dropped the vegetables into the sizzling wok, stirring. A delicious aroma filled the office. I relinquished all resentment, I think I just got my appetite back. Socrates laughed as he divided the crisp vegetables onto two plates and set them on his old desk, which served as our dining table. He ate in silence, taking small morsels with his chopsticks. I gobbled the vegetables in about 30 seconds, I guess I really was hungry. While Socrates finished his meal, I asked him, so what are the positive uses of the mind? He looked up from his plate. There aren't any. With that, he calmly returned to his meal. Aren't any? Socrates, that's really crazy. What about the creations of the mind? The books, libraries, arts? What about all the advances of our society that were generated by brilliant minds? He grinned, put down his chopsticks, and said, There aren't any brilliant minds. Then he carried the plates to the sink. Socrates, stop making these irresponsible statements and explain yourself. He emerged from the bathroom, bearing aloft two shining plates. I better redefine some terms for you. Mind is one of those slippery terms like love. The proper definition depends on your state of consciousness. Look at it this way, you have a brain that directs the body, stores information, and plays with that information. We refer to the brain's abstract processes as the intellect. Nowhere have I mentioned mind. The brain and the mind are not the same. The brain is real, the mind isn't. Mind is an illusory outgrowth of basic cerebral processes. It is like a tumor. It comprises all the random, uncontrolled thoughts that bubble into awareness from the subconscious. Consciousness is not mind, awareness is not mind, attention is not mind. Mind is an obstruction, an aggravation. It is a kind of evolutionary mistake in the human being, a primal weakness in the human experiment. I have no use for the mind. I sat in silence, breathing slowly. I didn't exactly know what to say. Soon enough, though, words came. You certainly have a unique perspective, Sock. I'm not sure what you're talking about, but you sound really sincere. He just smiled and shrugged. Sock, I continued, do I cut off my head to get rid of my mind? Smiling, he said, that's one cure, but it has undesirable side effects. The brain can be a tool. It can recall phone numbers, solve math puzzles, or create poetry. In this way, it works for the rest of the body, like a tractor. But when you can stop thinking of that math problem or phone number, or when troubling thoughts and memories arise without your intent, it's not your brain working, but your mind wandering. Then the mind controls you, then the tractor has run wild. I get it. To really get it, you must observe yourself to see what I mean. You have an angry thought bubble up and you become angry. It is the same with all your emotions. They're your knee-jerk responses to thoughts you can't control. Your thoughts are like wild monkeys stung by a scorpion point. Socrates, I think. You think too much. I was just going to tell you that I'm really willing to change. That's one thing about me, I've always been open to change. That, said Socrates, is one of your biggest delusions. You've been willing to change clothes, hairstyles, women, apartments, and jobs. You are all too willing to change anything, except yourself, but change you will. Either I help you open your eyes or time will, but time is not always gentle, he said ominously. Take your choice. But first realize that you're in prison, then we can plot your escape point. With that, he pulled up to his desk, picked up a pencil, and began checking off receipts, looking like a busy executive. I got the distinct feeling I'd been dismissed for the evening. I was glad class was out. For the next couple of days would soon stretch to weeks, I was too busy, I told myself, to drop in and visit with Socrates. But his words rattled around in my mind, I became preoccupied with its contents. I started keeping a small notebook in which I wrote down my thoughts during the day, except for workouts, when my thoughts gave way to action. In two days I had to buy a bigger notebook in a week that was full. I was astounded to see the bulk and general negativity of my thought processes. This practice increased my awareness of my mental noise, I'd turned up the volume on my thoughts that had only been subconscious background music before. I stopped writing, but still the thoughts blared. Maybe Sock could help me with the volume control. I decided to visit him that night. I found him in the garage, steam-cleaning the engine of an old Chevrolet. I was just about to speak when the small, dark-haired figure of a young woman appeared in the doorway. Not even Sock had heard her enter, which was very unusual. He saw her just before I did and glided toward her with open arms. She danced toward him and they hugged, whirling around the room. For the next few minutes, they just looked into each other's eyes. Socrates would ask, yes? And she'd answer, yes. It was pretty bizarre. With nothing else to do, I stared at her each time she whirled by. She was a little over five feet tall, sturdy-looking, yet with an aura of delicate fragility. Her long black hair was tied in a bun, pulled back from a clear, shining complexion. The most noticeable feature on her face was her eyes, large, dark eyes. My gaping must have finally caught their attention. Socrates said, Dan, this is joy. Right away, I was attracted to her. Her eyes sparkled over a sweet, slightly mischievous smile. Is Joy your name or a description of your mood? I asked, trying to be clever. Both, she replied. She looked at Socrates, he nodded. Then she embraced me. Her arms wrapped softly around my waist in a very tender hug. All at once I felt ten times more energized than ever before, I felt comforted, healed, rested, and totally love-struck. Joy looked at me with her large, luminescent eyes, and my own eyes glazed over. The old Buddha's been putting you through the ringer, has he? She said softly. Ha, I guess so. Wake up, Dan. Well, the squeeze is worth it. I know, he got to me first. My mouth was too weak to ask for the details. Besides, she turned to Socrates and said, I'm going now. Why don't we all meet here Saturday morning at 10 and go up to Tilden Park for a picnic? I'll make lunch. It looks like good weather. Okay? She looked at Sock, then at me. I nodded dumbly as she soundlessly floated out the door. I was no help to Socrates for the rest of the evening. In fact, the rest of the week was a total loss. Finally, when Saturday came, I walked shirtless to the bus station. I was looking forward to getting some spring tan and also hoped to impress Joy with my muscular torso. We took the bus up to the park and walked cross-country over crackling leaves scattered in thick piles among the pine, birch, and elm trees surrounding us. We unpacked the food on a grassy knoll in full view of the warm Sunday. I flopped down on the blanket, anxious to roast in the sun, and hoped Joy would join me. Without warming, the wind picked up and clouds gathered. I couldn't believe it. It had begun to rain first a drizzle, then a sudden downpour. I grabbed my shirt and put it on, cursing. Socrates only laughed. How can you think this is funny? I chided him. We're getting soaked, there's no bus for an hour, and the food's mined. Joy made the food, I'm sure she doesn't think it's so, Joy was laughing too. I'm not laughing at the rain, Sock said. I'm laughing at you. He roared, and rolled in the wet leaves. Joy started doing a dance routine to singing in the rain. Ginger Rogers and the Buddha, it was too much. The rain ended as suddenly as it had begun. The sun broke through and soon our food and clothes were dry. I guess my rain dance worked. Joy took a bow. As Joy sat behind my slumped form and gave my shoulders a rub, Socrates spoke. It's time you began learning from your life experiences instead of complaining about them or basking in them, Then. Two very important lessons just offered themselves to you, they fell out of the sky, so to speak. I dug into the food, trying not to listen. First, he said, munching on some lettuce, neither your disappointment nor your anger was caused by the rain. My mouth was too full of potato salad for me to protest. Socrates continued, regally waving a carrot slice at me. The rain was a perfectly lawful display of nature. Your upset at the mind picnic and your happiness when the sun reappeared were the product of your thoughts. They had nothing to do with the actual events. Haven't you been unhappy at celebrations for example? It is obvious then that your mind, not other people or your surroundings, is the source of your moods. That is the first lesson. Swallowing his potato salad, Sock said, The second lesson comes from observing how you became even more angry when you noticed that I wasn't upset in the least. You began to see yourself compared to a warrior, two warriors, if you please. He grinned at Joy. You didn't like that, did you, Dan? It might have implied a change was necessary. I sat morosely, absorbing what he'd said. I was hardly aware that he and Joy had darted off. Soon it was drizzling again. Socrates and Joy came back to the blanket. Socrates started jumping up and down, mimicking my earlier behavior. Goddamn rain. He veiled. Here goes our picnic. He stomped back and forth, then stopped in mid-stop, and winked at me, grinning mischievously. Then he dove onto his belly in a puddle of wet leaves and pretended to be swimming. Joy started singing, or laughing, I couldn't tell which I just let go then and started rolling around with them in the wet leaves, wrestling with Joy. I particularly enjoyed that part, and I think she did too. We ran and danced wildly, until it was time to leave. Joy was a playful puppy, yet with all the qualities of a proud, strong woman. I was sinking fast. As the bus rocked and rolled its way down the curving hills overlooking the bay, the sky turned pink and gold in the sunset. Socrates made a feeble attempt to summarize my lessons while I did my best to ignore him and snuggle with Joy in the back seat. Ahem, if I may have your attention, he said. He reached over, took my nose between two of his fingers, and turned my face toward him. Wad to you wad? I asked. Joy was whispering in my ear as Socrates held onto my nose. I'd rather listen to her than to you, I said. She'll only lead you down the primrose path, he grinned, releasing my nose. Even a young fool in the throes of love cannot fail to see how his mind creates both his disappointments and his joys. An excellent choice of words, I said, losing myself in Joy's eyes. As the bus rounded the bend we all sat quietly, watching San Francisco turn on her lights. The bus stopped at the bottom of the hill. Joy rose quickly and got off the bus, followed by Socrates. I started to follow, but he glanced back and said, no. That was all. Joy looked at me through the open window. Joy, when will I see you again? Perhaps soon. It depends, she said. Depends on what? I said. Joy, wait, don't go. Driver, let me off. But the bus was pulling away from them. Joy and Sock had already disappeared into the darkness. Sunday, I sank into a deep depression over which I had no control. Monday, in class, I hardly heard a word my professor said. I was preoccupied during the workout, and my energy was drained. I'd not eaten since the picnic. I prepared myself for my Monday night gas station visit. If I found joy there, I'd make her leave with me, or I'd leave with her. She was there, alright, laughing with Socrates, when I entered the office. Feeling like a stranger, I wondered if they were laughing at me. I went in, took off my shoes, and Saturday. Well, Dan, are you any smarter than you were on Saturday? Socrates said. Joy just smiled, but her smile hurt. I wasn't sure you'd show up tonight, Dan, for fear I might say something you didn't want to hear. His words were like small hammers. I clenched my teeth. Try to relax, Dan, Joy said. I know she was trying to help, but I felt overwhelmed criticized by both of them. Then Socrates continued, if you remain blind to your weaknesses, you can't correct them, nor can you play up your strengths. It's just like gymnastics. Look at yourself. I could hardly speak. When I did, my voice quavered with tension, anger, and self-pity. I looking I didn't want to act like this in front of her. Blithely, Socrates went on. I've already told you that your compulsive attention to the mind's moods and impulses is a basic error. If you persist, you'll remain yourself, and I can't imagine a worse fate." Socrates laughed heartily at this, and Joy nodded approvingly. "'He can be stuffy, can't he?' She grinned at Socrates. I sat very still and clenched my fists. Finally I could speak. "'I don't think either of you is very funny.' I kept my voice tightly controlled. Socrates leaned back in his chair and, with cold-blooded cruelty, said, You're auntie, but doing a mediocre job of hiding it, jackass. Not in front of Joy. I thought. Your anger, he continued, is proof of your stubborn illusions. Why defend a self you don't even believe in? When are you going to grow up? Listen, you crazy old bastard. I screeched. I'm fine. I've been coming here just for kicks. And I've seen what I needed to see. Your world seems full of suffering, not mine. I'm depressed alright, but only when I'm here with you. He began laughing. What was wrong? I hadn't said anything funny. I went on with the story, but soon a wave of laughter spread through the auditorium. Were they all crazy, or was I? Watkins whispered something to me, but I didn't hear. I went on pointlessly. He whispered again. Son, I think they're laughing, because your fly is open. Mortified, I glanced down and then out at the crowd. No. No, not again, not the fool again. Not the jackass again. I began to cry, and the laughter died. I ran out of the hall and through the campus, until I could run no more. Two women walked by me, plastic robots, social drones. As they passed, they stared at me with distaste, then turned away. I looked down at my dirty clothes which probably smelled. My hair was matted and uncombed, I hadn't shaved in days. I found myself in the student union without remembering how I got there and slumped into a sticky, plastic-covered chair and fell asleep. I dreamt I was impaled on a wooden horse by a gleaming sword. The horse, affixed to a tilting carousel, whirled round and round while I desperately reached out for the ring. Melancholy music played off-key, and behind the music I heard a terrible laugh. I awoke dizzy, and stumbled home. I'd begun to drift through the routine of school like a phantom. My world was turning inside out and upside down. I had tried to rejoin the old ways I knew, to motivate myself in my studies and training, but nothing made sense anymore. Meanwhile, professors rattled on and on about the Renaissance, the instincts of the rat, and Milton's middle years. I walked through Sproul Plaza each day amid campus demonstrations and walked through sit-ins. As if in a dream, none of it meant anything to me. Student power gave me no comfort, drugs could give me no solace. So I drifted, a stranger in a strange land, caught between two worlds without a handhold on either. Late one afternoon I sat in a redwood grove near the bottom of campus, waiting for the darkness, thinking about the best way to kill myself. I no longer belonged on this earth. Somehow I'd lost my shoes, I had on one sock and my feet were brown with dried blood. I felt no pain, nothing. I decided to see Socrates one last time. I shuffled toward the station and stalked across the street. He was finishing with a car as a lady and a little girl, about four years old, walked into the station. I don't think the woman knew Socrates, she could have been asking directions. Suddenly the little girl reached up to him. He lifted her and she threw her arms around his neck. The woman tried to pull the little girl away from Socrates, but she wouldn't let go. Socrates laughed and talked to her, setting her down gently. He knelt down and they hugged each other. I became unaccountably sad then, and started to cry. My body shook with anguish. I turned, ran a few hundred yards and collapsed on the path. I was too weary to go home, to do anything, maybe that's what saved me. I awoke in the infirmary. There was an IV needle in my arm. Someone had shaved me and cleaned me up. I felt rested, at least. I was released the next afternoon and called Cowell Health Center. Drive Baker, please. His secretary answered. My name is Dan Millman. I'd like to make an appointment with Dr. Baker as soon as possible. Yes, Mr. Millman, she said in the bright, professionally friendly voice of a psychiatrist's secretary. The doctor has an opening a week from this Tuesday at 1pm, would that be alright? Isn't there anything sooner? I'm afraid not. I'm going to kill myself before a week from this Tuesday, lady. Can you come in this afternoon? Her voice was soothing. Will 2pm be alright? Yes. Fine, see you then, Mr. Millman. Dr. Baker was a tall, corpulent man with a slight nervous tie around his left eye. Suddenly, I didn't feel like talking to him at all. How would I begin? Well, Herr Doctor. I have a teacher named Socrates who jumps up on rooftops, no, not off of them, that's what I'm planning to do. And, oh yes, he takes me on journeys to other places and times and I become the wind and I'm a little depressed and, yes school's fine and I'm a gymnastics star and I want to kill myself. I stood. Thank you for your time, Doctor. I'm suddenly feeling great. I just wanted to see how the better half lived. It's been swell. He started to speak, searching for the right thing to say, but I walked out, went home, and slept. For the time being, sleep seemed the easiest alternative. That night, I dragged myself to the station. Joy was not there. Part of me suffered exquisite disappointment, I wanted so much to look into her eyes again, to hold her and be held, but part of me was relieved. It was one-on-one again, Sock and me. When I sat down he said nothing of my absence, only, you look tired and depressed. He said it without a trace of pity. My eyes filled with tears. Yes, I'm depressed. I came to say goodbye. I owe you that. I'm stuck halfway, and I can't stand it anymore. I don't want to live. You're wrong about two things, Dan. He came over and sat beside me on the couch. First, you're not halfway yet. Not by a long shot. But you are very close to the end of the tunnel. And the second thing, he said, reaching for my temple, is that you're not going to kill yourself. I glared at him. Says who? Then I realized we were no longer in the office, we were sitting in a cheap hotel room. There was no mistaking the musty smell, the thin, gray carpets, the two tiny beds, and the small, cracked, second-hand mirror.